Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm a child and a scholar. <laughs> By the name of Keith Silva. Keith Thank Silva. you, Keith. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the movies of Nicholas Roque, particularly The Man Who Fell to Earth but I think we'll probably touch on a few of the other films by him. Uh, if you're not familiar with The Man Who Fell to Earth, it stars David Bowie, along with Rip Torn, Candy Clark, and uh, a number of other excellent art actors uh, from the time. Such a hard word, actors. Uh, chronicles the story of a, a alien played by David Bowie who crash lands on Earth, who is uh, able to invent a series of technological innovations that earn him a tremendous amount of money. He brings in a lawyer uh, played by Buck Henry, who you might know from extremely old Saturday Night Live reruns, who uh, basically helps the Bowie character become a multi-millionaire. As part of that process, as he becomes uh, rich and famous, he is discovered by the government. The government begins to take action against him and um, take him prisoner by the end. And uh, it's kind of a quick overview of the film. Did you have anything you wanted to add about that? Yeah, I would just add really quick, uh, Buck Henry uh, memorably also plays the desk clerk who uh, in The Graduate who asks uh, if, you, if, uh, if uh, he is here for an affair. Uh, the Buck Henry section uh, in The Graduate uh, is just, a masterclass in writing and jokes and subtlety and all that other stuff. So yeah, I, Buck Henry, that's, that's how I know him is this, the desk clerk for the graduate who says, uh, are you here for an affair, sir? <laughs> he is brilliant in that movie. He's actually really underrated in this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, as you know, Rogue had a habit of casting uh, musicians in his films uh, famously, he cast Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, of course, in performance as in kind of a dual role, although that's kind of an interesting uh, metaphor there. Uh, Boeing plays the alien here, of course, and um, is very appropriate for that role. And then uh, Garfunkel from Simon and Garfunkel plays the jealous boyfriend in uh, Bad Timing from 1980, which was a very dark uh, rogue film. Rogue is famous for these kind of fractured narratives, also these very kind of sexually frank narratives. Um, there is full frontal nudity from both men and women in, in oh. nearly all of his films and adds to the kind of uniqueness of it. Also, he's very into telling a story in a kind of a very fractured way. As he said uh, more than once in interviews, he, he sees time as not just a linear progression, but as we deal with time, we're living in past, present, and future all at once. And so he sees his fractured way of taking on a film as being a way to uh, kind of emulate the experience we have in a, inside our head. It's a style that's really hard to get used to, though. And I certainly found myself fighting it, even when I watch uh, Don't Look Now, which is probably the most thematically coherent of his films, and therefore also probably the most uh, popular of his films these days, uh, where, you know, you have to kind of sit and allow the film to wash over you and just take it in and try to make sense of it as it goes, because otherwise you find yourself fighting against the tide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was curious how the, the nonlinear storytelling felt for you watching The Man Who Fell to Earth. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about, you're absolutely right about Rogue. He is one of those directors where you need to just sort of 
be patient, sit back and enjoy the ride. Um, you're going to pick it up. It's all going to make sense in the end, but getting there is sometimes a bit of a confusing process. Um, it's funny. I, I recently watched Strange Days, the Catherine Bigelow movie uh, that came out in the 90s. And I was struck with how, sh- how that movie is constructed. And one thing that's really interesting about Rogue is the things that he was doing in these movies are 60s and 70s, right? Or, or both 70s movies. They're 70s movies. Okay. Um, this, is, this is common nowadays. We are, in, in 2021, we are very okay with fractured narratives. We've all seen Pulp Fiction. We've all seen uh, these other movies where past, present, and future all, you know, mixed together. Um, you know, uh, time is a flat circle, all that sort of stuff. So this is one of the first times I think watching a rogue movie, even though it was Man Fell to Earth, which is certainly challenging with where it's going and what's happening. Um, you know, this is a director who does not hold your hand, but everything gets explained. And there are times in uh, Man Fell to Earth where David Bowie stops at a particular location and you see something you're like, oh, was that at the very beginning of the movie? And sure enough, Rogue cuts a shot in to show you that again. And don't look now. I almost get tired of seeing the 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 pond. I'm like, how many times are you going to use this one, Nick? You know, he goes back to that same shot to remind you of what's happening. So as much as we want to think of him as being this, and he's idiosyncratic, you know, to, to you know, he's the most one of the most idiosyncratic directors. The movies aren't hard to follow. I've seen them a few times. I've dealt in his world. Uh, did you feel, Jason, watching the third and fourth one, you really went uh, all the way here, that that you you were acclimatized? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Rogue's movies is that, especially now where there's really two, as, as you're talking about, there's really a couple different approaches to creating a film. One is uh, maybe best, best example is the TV show Witcher, which flips ahead and back in okay. time all over the place, right? So it has this deliberately nonlinear storytelling style that's meant to make you feel confused, but make, me, also meant to make you feel more invested. The lit, then there's a lot of plenty of movies that do linear storytelling style. Right. The Marvel movies are a perfect example, right? All, most of the blockbuster movies, just right. A to B to C to D. Act one does this thing, act two does this thing. You could almost imagine a curtain coming down in between the acts as, as something happens. Uh, it seems in a lot of ways that Rogue's movies are about breaking down those barriers, about kind of uh, playing with the format in a way that moves things around such that you're never quite comfortable, mm-hmm. right? And in any of his films, you just never quite know what's going to happen because you never know how the past is going to resonate with the present. You never know how characters are going to react in unpredictable ways. And uh, that's something that just really sticks in, in your mind watching it. Uh, one of the one of the uh, most challenging films he did was a 1980 movie, Bad Timing, because he plays with, it's this very interesting movie where he plays with the time changes as literally from the moment the movie starts. Uh, it came out in 1980. It's available on Criterion Channel. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it and, and assume that you know the movie or, or we'll look it up. Uh, it starts with uh, the character played by Teresa Russell having an overdose. And it's we begin with her 
uh, kind of being brought to the hospital. Then we flash back to her in the Garfunkel character meeting. And then we, the movie just hops around the entire time, flipping back and forth from past to present. In a way, it's barely reminiscent of the other movie we talked about from that era, All That Jazz, hmm. where okay. uh, we have the subjective viewpoint of how this character is kind of reciting everything in his own head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so it gives the movie a whole different kind of texture. And we see that to a great extent here in The Man Who Fell to Earth. I was, it's funny when you brought up a movie we'd seen before all that jazz and we've talked about on the podcast, the one I was thinking of was Point Blank. This mm -hmm. movie definitely has that yeah. same fractured story structure. You sort of have to figure out where things go but in the end, it's all very clear. And, it, you know, it comes to, you know, there are there are non sequiturs, certainly in Rogue's movies and certainly in Man Who Fell to Earth. There's a couple of, you know, plot strands where, you know, you're like, OK, I guess this is you know central to the story. Um, but it all fits. It all makes sense. And I think, you know, re I had watched Don't Look Now before Man Who Fell to Earth was new to me. And I had remembered that and been like, oh, yeah, I, I, I got this. You know, I'm, I'm going to be OK. And I remember the first time seeing Walkabout. That was my first Rogue movie mm -hmm. and really being confused and wondering what, you know, this does not live up to the hype. Uh, but by the end, being like, oh, OK, I get it now. You know, so yeah, I'm it requires I, a little bit of patience. I literally watched Walkabout this morning. Did you feel uh, like it lived up to the to the hype by the end or as you look at it, at, think about it now? Uh, I remember it's probably been, geez, probably 10 years since I saw Walkabout. Okay. So what I recall was just that sense of, you know, like this is Nicholas Rogue. Okay, I, I get it. Um, the one for me was seeing, man, you know, what I love about this podcast is the ability to see things I haven't seen before. And that's how I watched Man Who Fell to Earth. Did my homework late today. Uh, <laughs> cut it in just under the wire. So, um, and yeah, the first... You know, I, I remember pausing it at one point to get a snack or get up or whatever. And uh, I was like, oh, it's another hour and a half for this movie left. <laughs> this is, you know, this is a, this is a long thing. And you're, 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 you know, you're in there. And I think that's, you know, I have to be careful because so often I complain about, you know, uh, having to be spoon fed and having my, you know, I don't need my hand held. So when the, the non-hand-holding movies come up, you can't sit back and be like, I didn't understand where I was. So, um, did and you, then Man Who Fell to Earth was definitely that way. Did you find this movie to be a little grueling, though? Mm. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think, again, uh, Don't Look Now is a... Uh, it's, just, it's a great movie. I've seen it. Uh, this is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. And I'm familiar with the sex scene, of course, which I hope we get to talk about in a bit. But uh, Man Who Fell to Earth gives you two or three uh, extended sex scenes, and they are grueling. That's not necessarily, the, you know, they're 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 there for a reason. And sometimes I wonder what that reason is for. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about that in a minute. Uh, I found so I. Uh, uh, track 29 which is basically Teresa Russell uh, imagines her child who was taken away from her from her after birth coming back to to uh, be with her and I thought it's a 90 minute film and I found it to be just a challenge to get through the whole time I was admiring it 
but it's just a challenge. Like I have this, like deliberately forced myself to sit there and spend time with it. I felt the same way with performance. I felt like the, the movie was powerful. Uh, really interesting kind of portrait of how people imagine these kind of post-psychedelic era, mm -hmm. uh, kind of pre-decadence era of rock music. Right. Uh, from, it really felt like uh, almost a documentary about Exile in Main Street, the Rolling Stones album. <laughs> uh, and and even, uh, especially Bad Timing, which is uh, just so dark. Uh, mm. I found all his movies to be just hard to get through in a way that's really unique. You know, it's really interesting. You bring this up and it's something I think of an awful lot. Um, Again, this is like, you know, kids get off my lawn, but it's we take focusing and sitting and focusing on a piece of work, whether it's a movie or whatever, talk about fracturing. Our focus is so fractured nowadays and so easily it's almost brittle. So when you come across a movie that really requires you to focus on it and to look at it and to pay attention to it, I think that those muscles have just atrophied a little bit uh, yeah. for us in modern times. And I see it, I do it myself, you know, uh, people in glass, you know, houses shouldn't throw stones, uh, you know, pausing a movie. I mean, can you imagine if you went to go see man who fell to earth and you were in the theater and you were there and there's no distractions whatsoever. I think the movie hits a lot differently. Uh, don't look now. Definitely. When you, you know, when you can focus on that one, that movie hits a lot differently than when you can sort of stop and pause. And, and even if it's, and I'm not talking about getting up to go to the bathroom and coming back two minutes later. I mean, I mean, pausing it and coming back to it hours later or the next day or whatever. And I think that movie makes a lot more sense and actually fits <laughs> a little bit of a, a fractured viewing in some ways. Your rogue loves his edits and he has editing credits. It's something he, he did yeah. in the past in his career. He's also a cinematographer and we can talk about his beautiful scene mm -hmm. setting also. Uh, I was listening to a pod before uh, we recorded that was talking about the, the scene in Walkabout where the father uh, basically sent his children into exile mm -hmm. has something like 80 cuts within one minute. And that's so typical of him. And something you think of maybe in terms of a Jason Bourne movie or something, but for a yeah. movie of that era, when they were literally splicing film, yeah. it's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Manchurian Candidate, the, I know you've talked about that on this podcast as well. The editing in the, you know, scene where he goes into the uh, corporation or whatever to see if he's tested or whatever. And there's all the quick cuts, you know, that, broke huge barriers at the time but nicholas rogue was doing that 10 years before with that scene from walkabout that you mentioned and it's really remarkable we take these things for granted nowadays because you know all these things have been used and reused and repurposed and you know referenced and everything like that so i think it's really you know in some ways it's a little challenging to watch an older movie nowadays because you're like what's the big deal here i, I see this all the time i see this in you know, turn on the TV and, you know, talk about quick cuts, um, commercials and all this other stuff. So it's really remarkable. And that's the thing about Rogue is he was doing this when nobody else was. And he's he's a trailblazer. That's why with a limited amount of films under his belt and really, you know, 
two or three that are really, you know, maybe cinephiles know he's very influential. Yeah. I think he really only has two movies that even a very devoted film, a film watcher would know. Don't look now. Um, and the man who fell to earth, which was a midnight movie for a long time, kind of appropriate film to be a midnight movie. (laughs) Yeah. It's very appropriate. But like, I mean, who's heard of bad timing or, uh, walkabout is another one that you might know if you're in Australia. That's a that's a that's a that's a film nerd movie. I think walkabout. You know, it, it's it was the first one in the Criterion Collection. He, um, he he does have one movie that people of a certain age would know, which is the uh, the witches. The role. Oh, the witches. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Which that's is right. a. I remember that movie being so dark and and bizarre <laughs> for a kids movie. It's a Henson movie, and it's so dark. Oh well, uh, those Jim Henson movies tend to be dark, uh, darker than we think. So. Way deep, way yes. darker than Labyrinth. Yes, which yes. is a good transition Another, to come back to talking about David, David Bowie, Bowie yeah. who seems like he was just kind of cast in his natural environment. You know, can you ask for a better person to play an alien than David Bowie, circa nineteen seventy four? So yeah, no, you can't. It's just this is this is coming out of. Um, Ziggy Stardust moving into the 70s where moving in you know, the Berlin trilogy is essentially about to start uh, when this movie ends. Yeah, uh, do you know the back to... do you know the story about this movie soundtrack? Yeah, yeah, I read it today. I mean, yes, but you know only only very recently but share, yeah, share that. I, that's the same same thing for me. So Bowie had been they had agreed that Bowie's going to provide the soundtrack and he was essentially too strung out to, to produce it. At the same time, he was in Berlin creating the first of his dark Berlin trilogy, Low. Oh. And uh, the, the soundtrack, uh, the, the Low album came out shortly thereafter, but it wouldn't have worked for this movie. Mm. I, would, I, I, I was thinking of the songs on Low. Maybe the, the second side, uh, be the, the side two, where it's more, um, you know, instrumentals and atmospheric sort of stuff. That would have, that would have fit. But um, yeah, to, to think that he's making this, um, you know, high on cocaine, riding that limousine, uh, <laughs> doesn't really l- rhyme as good as The Grateful Dead's Casey Jones, but um, <laughs> definitely one of those things where, you know, this is, you know, this is 70s David Bowie at his, you know, his best and his worst in some ways, you know, as far as drug addiction and, um, but about to create, you know, you know, about to shift his whole uh, game again from the, the folk to the rock to now the 70s, you know, getting more into that craft work and um, uh, those those German rock bands that were can uh, mm-hmm. that were coming up, uh, you know, in the 70s. I mean, you know, he's he's doing his thing, man. And he's so perfect in this movie in so many ways. Um, but also like, it's just like, it's, you gotta be kidding me. Like, you know, he's too perfect in some ways. Like, you, you know, you need him to be less alien. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing I was going to bring up as my point, or as, as I was thinking about this movie is you can really see this movie as a parable about what it means to be a rock star. So okay. a star will sometimes feel like he falls down to earth from another planet. Right. And someone like Bowie kind of feels like a man who's kind of literally alien to our culture. Yep. He splashes down. He has this 
uh, some time before he becomes well-known, but he quickly becomes someone who's at least hovering around people's consciousness. Appropriately, two of his early songs are Starman and, of course, Major Tom. <laughs> so, you know, he's already in people's minds as a spaceman. That, that, then he gets people's attention. Then he starts to become popular. But that's when his label kind of becomes aware of him and tries to pigeonhole him, tries to force him into a box, uh, metaphorically tries to put him in a velvet prison, like the character is in this film. And uh, at the end, he tries to break away and only becomes free when they allow him to be free. Right. He has grandiose designs. He dreams of being something better than himself, but he's being held back by the constraints that have been put upon him. So I would conjecture that he's perfect for this film in part because it's very much about him. Yeah. On a couple I mean different levels. Yeah, based on an original novel uh, by Walter Tevis, a uh, science fiction story, a science fiction writer. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's a great reading of this movie is to see Bowie as, and I think rock star is good, that, that works for Bowie, but I think it's anyone who um, rises to, you know, uh, public consciousness, you know, cultural consciousness. My reading of this was... Again, I'm trying to get away from this thing. This movie was ahead of its time because um, yeah. it, it, it was and it wasn't, you know, thematically. I mean, here you have a, a character, right, who essentially creates a company, uh, self, self-made, self you know, uh, his own, you know, founds his own company and makes millions of dollars. And his goal, see if, they catch, see if you can catch this, is to go to space. That's mm -hmm. where his big thing is right now. Mm -hmm. And that's in watching this and watching that scene at the launch pad where he's in the hood and gets glasses on and everything like that. I thought, oh my God, this is just, you know, Bezos uh, and Elon Musk and all these billionaires who, you know, have nothing better to do with their money than get to space. Newton, uh, David Bowie's character, uh, has a purpose. He's trying to get home. <laughs> But I don't know if Bezos and Elon Musk are from other planets. Some people might might think so. They might uh, think they're from other planets too. They, they might think they're otherworldly intelligence. Exactly. But that was the one that struck me here. Was I was like, it works. I think that I think what we're getting at here, and, and what you're catching, Jason, is that the ideas that Rogue is going for, whether it's you know the rock star, uh, the literal rock star, you know, becoming uh, you know a public figure or the billionaire becoming a public figure. Both those ideas are in this movie and it's not the whole sense of the movie. The movie is about a lot of other things. That's just one idea that Rogue is throwing out there and it works because I don't know, it, it, universal is that too much of a, a, a pun? Um, but it, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great idea and it works because it's always worked. <laughs> you know, it's always gonna work, so. He just is, he fills this role and it's an interesting performance because it's very understated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I think of Jagger in performance, he is out front and yeah. his energy is there. When I think of Garfunkel in bad timing, he also is very much out front and he's kind of displaying his kind of musician personality, this kind of overly sensitive personality. Uh, mm -hmm. Bowie here 
has a uh, very distinct sort of personality that's uh, understated, kind of quiet. And we're, we're asked to kind of read into his alienness, uh, some of our own approach to the world. You have to fill yeah. in gaps with him. Absolutely. I, I think that's the other thing about David Bowie as a performer. You know, he knew how to do, he knew how to do the stuff out front. He knew how to be a front man and he knew how to lay back. He knew how to produce. He knew all these different aspects. And one of the things that you really see here uh, for me is David Bowie's theatricality. I mean, there was a reason why people went to him to be an actor and then to act again. I mean, I, I probably have seen boy, most of David Bowie's film performances and they're all stand out. You never forget. I mean, he's the best, you know, his, his role is Tesla. And I mean, that's for a movie. I can't remember. It's his performance that stands out uh, to me. And we were talking about, you know, Labyrinth. I mean, he's like the whole thing in Labyrinth, man. I mean, the puppets are great and the maze is cool, but you remember David Bowie. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing about him. And even his small TV roles, uh, when he's on extras, that Ricky Gervais show, I mean, he's awesome and he's playing himself and he's just great. He just knows how to perform. He is a born entertainer. Okay, he's really good in prestige. Oh, the prestige. He's, he's wonderful in, in the uh, David Lynch movies too, in the Twin Peaks. Oh movies. yeah. Just, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Or him in these movies. But like, I, one of the things I like about Bowie in the films is he's also kind of really displaying what makes him great in as a musician is he's able to really play different roles and put on different hats, right? And yeah. by the time he does this movie, he had done the blue-eyed soul of young Americans. He'd done the alienating style. He'd done this robotic thing when he uh, on station for sta oh, station, the station, yeah. right? And he, yet to come was the kind of big, bold rock star of the 80s. Uh, but Bowie was already this really kind of idiosyncratic person who was kind of playing in these parts already. You know, he was the thin white duke. He was yeah. the alien. He was, you know, Ziggy Stardust. And because right. of that, he just seemed like such a natural fit for this movie. But we can't underplay the, the subtlety of his performance here. Right. The subtle right. alienation he seems to feel all throughout. When he puts on those glasses, especially, he seems to become this other person it's almost like you know he's turning into a clark kent or something yeah yeah i mean he's he's a great actor i think that's the other thing you know that's the thing that bowie among all of those seminal 60s and 70s rock people he brings to you know he brings a presence but he also brings a theatricality i know that word gets used a lot with bowie but it's true and it's not in that he's acting it's more that he's He's putting on a performance. He is showing you something you haven't seen before. And he's invested in the story. I, I, you know, I think that's the other thing that's really interesting. You know, he, you know, David Bowie gets to be a little grimy in this. And, you know, I think that's the other thing about Rogue's movies is there, there's some real loose ends, certainly, but it's ragged. These movies are ragged. They're not perfect, you know, seamless pieces of art. There's things that are... are incongruous things that are left out and things that aren't followed up that still work but it's all of a piece and it all fits together so i think well, that's I, the other thing that bowie does i think that makes him better because it forces yeah. you to fill in the gaps and also it really does kind of reflect real life uh yeah. you know you can sit here we could sit and debate whether the dwarf at the end of don't look now is a real or metaphorical 
thing that that the Donald Sutherland character encounters and either reading is valid. Yep. Yep. Uh, because it's, his movies are really not about things as much as anything. They're about emotions and feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. An atmosphere and 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 a, and a sense of what's happening around you, um, what the world is like. I, I I find it very interesting that science fiction a lot of times uh, the the phrase I I don't like it, Jason. It comes up in comics a lot. World building. Mm-hmm. I get it. I know what it's about. I know why it's important. I know why people really need it. Rogue does nothing like that with Man Who Fell to Earth, though I understand that world quite well. It's that science fiction that is, what if everything was the same, but slightly different? Change one thing. In this case, you know, the technology that uh, Newton brings to Earth, literally, changes one thing, you know, and now there's all this, you know, technology, this, uh, the We Corporation, which is the World Enterprises, which is genius uh, for a name. But just one of those things where, I totally understood this world. I didn't need any world building. You didn't need to see me making the cameras to understand what was happening. You know, I didn't need to see him dream up a camera and people buying them or whatever. You just, I mean, it's that kind of simplicity and subtlety you were talking about in Bowie's performance that I think is also a hallmark of this movie. Yeah, the movie needs that that simplicity and uh, because otherwise, I think you'd be overwhelmed by it. I think it would Rogue. get to be too much. The, the the what Rogue brings to the movie kind of requires a certain amount of simplicity. Rogue trusts his he trusts people to follow him. He trusts you to fill in the gaps. He trusts his audience. He's not talking down to you. He's not trying to explain everything to an nth of you know the degree. He's just saying, "This is the world that I've created, and what you see is what you get out of it." And and I think that's just you know, more filmmakers should do that. You make a good point because I spent the first 15 minutes of this movie saying, what am I watching? This is all so strange, <laughs> right? When when the Bowie character comes into the town and there's the giant house, the inflatable house. Oh, like, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. What is this? And he goes to the, to, to the woman who runs the antique store, not a pawn shop, as she says. Not a pawn shop, yeah. Uh, and, and sells his gold. And I'm like, wow, this is just uh, what... Okay. And like, we never get an explanation, for example, of what he sells. Or to, why. Why? Well, <laughs> it's not why, because it's clear he wants to make, he wants to save up the money so he can build this rocket ship to send them home, to take care of his family. Right. But where does he get the rest of the stuff? How does he invent all this? Right. He, there, there's, there's gaps there, right? Because he brings the big wad of money to Buck Henry to say, right, be right. my lawyer. Right. But, but we don't know where he gets the rest of his money. Right, and, just and he just sort of shows up. Yeah, go ahead and fill this in, okay, audience, because it's not that important, really. Get don't right. get hung up on the important, unimportant things. We have bigger things we're getting after here. One minute he's dipping a tin cup into a river and drinking the water. The next minute he's at Buck Henry's house, being like, "I've got these patents." <laughs> You're like, "Okay, <laughs> yep, yep, just roll with it." So the Buck Henry character is a weird character. Did you think there's a parable or anything in the weird glasses he wears that distort his eyes and make him unable to drive? (sighs) The glasses feel to me like an affectation. 
and you know if you don't know it's buck henry the comedian or the comedian the the writer essentially because buck henry wrote the graduate i believe yeah and he wrote a lot for tv and right right and a lot for tv you mentioned saturday night live so I didn't read too much into the glasses as in, you know, other than a choice, like I'm going to wear these really ridiculous, you know, bifocals essentially that, that make, uh, make my eyes look weird. I was reminded of Terrell in the Blade Runner movies. And I wondered if Ridley Scott borrowed the glasses, the idea of the glasses from Buck Henry and Man Who Fell to Earth, I wouldn't be surprised. The thing about the Buck Henry character is again, you take it, I think nowadays we recognize it right away, but back then it would have been a big deal. Buck Henry's gay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, his, his character is gay. He has a, he has a, a partner that he lives with. Uh, could be a, you know, it seems like he's a, maybe a bodyguard or a business partner, but nope, he's a romantic partner and it's not remarked upon. Nobody says anything. Nobody talks about it. It's not, you know, you don't see any scenes with him, you know, in some romantic uh, situation but I read that character as gay and I think it's Absolutely. just another thing about the movie that you know a gay character a, 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 a positive male relationship you know uh, you know in a in a movie like this okay art house but it's got David Bowie in it so people are gonna go um, I think I think it's just one of those other brilliant things about uh, about about this movie I agree the, the complete subtlety of it is just wonderful. And the fact that no one makes any remark on it, it's just treated as part of this character. Yeah, so like so ahead of its time. Yeah. Now, we, of course, we don't think twice about it, but for that era, it was remarkable. Right, right. exactly. Kind of fits Rogue's ethos too, which seems to be, yeah, I don't care what, what you're doing sexually because I'm just going to chronicle it. And right, or... Out, you know, people are going to be freaks or whatever. Right. Or it's just a sense that there are gay people, there are straight people. This is a gay person. <laughs> what do you want me a, to tell you? <laughs> there's also an interracial couple. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah, again would have point. been extremely controversial. Well, maybe not extremely, but would have been controversial at the time. Oh, I, I think it would have been controversial. Yeah, I don't think the loving case had happened yet. So, you know, it was illegal in some places probably. You're right, you know, yeah. Early 70s, so... Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't even pick up on the interracial one. Uh, so good good catch there, Jason. I definitely uh, uh, missed that. Yeah, and then, you know, that's one of this, the, the, we never see the, the gay sex, but we see a lot of other sex in this film. <laughs> yes, we The do. most notorious film, uh, scene being the uh, gun sex scene. Okay, yeah. Bowie and his girlfriend are part of Mary Lou yeah, where they're playing this kind of dark version of "Hello, Mary Lou, Goodbye Heart," as, uh, <laughs> as Bowie and Mary Lou are shooting blanks at each other. But also <laughs> an older Mary Lou. This an older isn't the young ingenue Mary Lou. This is uh, 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 what would you? How would you phrase this? She's she's probably in her late fifties at that point. I mean, time and age is a weird thing in this movie to begin with. If we haven't sort of oh, got that so, out. You so have no let's idea go, how long let, time let, elapses. Let's go back here for just a second. So uh, they meet when uh, Newton checks himself into this motel, certainly yeah. not a hotel. And he collapses on the elevator right. and bloodies his nose and stuff. And we never understand why. Do you have any idea why? 
I have no idea why. Just uh, he he fainted, and uh, he did, elevators moving really fast uh, affect uh, alien space travelers. I yeah, guess. yeah. So it's like what the <laughs> hell, right? And then they get off the elevator, and Mary Lou picks him up and carries him apparently a good distance to his room. She carries him. We see her folds him up like over a suitcase. the threshold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then she stays and hangs out with him all night. Yep. Even though she apparently is employed by the motel, right? At one point she says, I have the room, I have other rooms I need to make up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very weird sequence. Did you make any sense of that sequence other than no. These are just these people doing the thing they want to do. Exactly. I I thought, okay, she's gonna carry him and you know, there's no explanation of what happens to him. There's no explanation of uh, anything. And at that point, you know, knowing what neighborhood I was in, I just sort of let it go. And <laughs> I, I found I found Candy Clark's performance at the beginning of the movie to be very one note. She was being sort of the hick from the sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and she was just sort of, you know, this kind of dumb blonde character uh you know ditzy woman kind of you know nothing there and you know throughout the movie she really turns it she she's she's far deeper than that there's far more to her than that she learns she has a, a you know she doesn't have a backstory necessarily you don't know where her family is but nobody has a except for david bowie really has a backstory in this movie yeah and uh the rip torn character um but, you know, she changes and she becomes different people throughout this movie. And she's really, you know, she doesn't have agency, probably, but she certainly shows it uh, in that beginning where she picks him up and carries him in. You make the point of the threshold that might that would that would have been, you know, people might have read that as in, whoa, what's going on here? You know, sort of revert roles reversed and things like that. Um, but, yeah, that, that whole scene at the beginning, I was just like, you know. I think we said this before we started talking or recording. You know, I thought it was an ad for beef eater gin. That's really what I thought Candy Clark was. <laughs> Did these people drink more gin? Holy crap. <laughs> Holy crap. And, the, you know, 3 a.m. she leaves him after them. they hang out all night. And the bottle of beef eater gin is, gin is almost completely empty. And she's the only one drinking. Right. Yeah. I think she does have agency, though. She she decides all along in the movie to to to... Um, you know, at one point she walks out on him. At the other point, she really becomes his wife, or for want of a better uh, explanation. At the end, they come back together in part because she's just so fascinated with him. She's never met anyone loves else him. like him, right? Yeah, she loves him. I don't think there's any question of you know yeah, she and, loves him. I don't know if he loves her, but yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think he loves her? Hmm. I don't know what love is for, uh, for, for aliens. I think that he is, I think there's a performative portion of their relationship on his end. Um, but she's also very cool with that. And I don't mean cool in that 60s sort of way. She's like, you know, you have a wife, your wife and your children, and she knows, you know, what he's about. So she understands the relationship maybe better than he does in some ways. Yeah. So that may be your agency again that, that you brought up. She's doing what she wants to in this movie. Mm. 
no one's mm-hmm. forcing her to do anything all throughout she's making her own decisions mm-hmm. uh sure. she may see herself in the shadow of this man of newton but newton's an exceptional person right uh right. i mean I want to say the Bechtel rule should apply, but I kind of I'm not sure it should in this case. I don't know if she ta- I don't know if she talks to another woman about anyone but uh, you know uh, a man. There aren't too many other female roles in this movie. Uh, certainly. But this is so. unique. This isn't like you know Jason Bourne's girlfriend talking about him the right. entire time. This is a right. character whose life is completely changed by this literal person who beams down from space to spend time with her and literally falls at her feet literally falls at her feet and completely changes her appears to be a completely boring small town life mayorville yeah she even when he when he says you know at 3 a.m when he kicks her out of the the hotel room i'm like is she gonna drive drunk what's gonna happen and she's here (laughs) kind of wandering through the daylight through the the walk of shame (laughs) yeah the walk of shame yeah yeah Uh, but I, i think there's a couple other things i'll point out about this and um, this will definitely come up as we, you know, sort of move over towards Don't Look Now. But there are some, I think the other thing about this movie that is makes it such a, a movie, a film, and I, I don't say that with any pretension, is there are visuals in this movie that are really cool that you just don't, you don't get in a lot of movies. That whole, all those TVs packed upon each other. Now, again, that's something that we've seen in a thousand and one you know, movies nowadays, screens are everywhere in our world. Every movie that's about today is, you know, suffused with screens. But boy, when you see all those TVs lined up that, that Newton is watching and he's got that special like chair, it's, you don't get that, man. That's, that's some cool visual ideas there that are, you know, not to be missed and not to be taken lightly. It feels way ahead of its time. It feels yeah. like he's a man yeah. who's just sucking in all the media he can. And it's because he's using it to kind of shut off his brain. Right, right. But even as we record right now, you and I are, you know, talking on screens on a split screen. You can't see it, Jason, but there's a certain baseball game that's on in the background that is just over your shoulder uh, <laughs> or, or, or the screen here. You know, we've got our phones nearby us. I know your phone is, is nearby you, too. Now so you, now you've got me looking. Okay, what's the score? <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a good score so far. You know, we're working our way through. But uh, but anyhow, they're, they're, that's the other thing that this movie presupposes. And so so maybe it's not ahead of its time. It's just like seeing a future that is very real and very easy to sort of understand, more so maybe than the future of Blade Runner or these other future dystopias. This isn't a dystopia, obviously. Uh, unless you know billionaires running the world is dystopic, I, I don't know that your, your <laughs> mileage your mileage may vary. Um, but yeah, that's the other thing about this is it's ahead of its time with these ideas. But on the same flip side, most of this movie takes place in you know a desert in a in a, in a on a lake in in the country, you know. And that's the other thing about this story that I was not prepared for was this whole idea that you know essentially you know he's in he's in rural america you know that 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 limousine is driving through back roads that are probably more familiar to me than they are to you so and it's the most subtle science fiction movie imaginable in the same way that don't look now is a very subtle horror film maybe a little more explicitly a horror film but 
uh, this is still a very subtle sci-fi film. Yeah. With those few scenes of uh, uh, Newton and his family on the other planet, but <laughs> whatever that is, whatever that is, right? It yeah, we feels... need some production. That's where green screen would have really been uh, effective. <laughs> it could have could have done that one really well, but uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, the budget ran out for the the, the train of uh, whatever planet Newton comes from. Well, of course, when you were talking about the filming, I thought you were going to be talking about the cinematography of the of n- nature. And yeah, the lake, well, I think that the desert and all the other right. landscapes of this film because clouds. Oh my goodness, they looked so good in my 70-inch TV. It just felt like I was really embedded in those environments. Yeah. And you know, as I mentioned, he has a background in cinematography. He was right. he was a he had directed over half or cinema, he was a cinematographer for over half of Dr. Zhivago, yep. among other films. Yep. And uh, you know, you see that in every one of his films. Yes. Every one of his films, uh, Walkabout particularly. Yeah, obviously the biggest. Uh, yeah, nature is a huge factor in Urug's work. And even, I mean, you don't think about it in uh, Don't Look Now because it takes place in a city, but it happens to take place in a city that's built on water. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, yeah, the scenes when he goes out west and the car's driving through you know, all this, you know, these natural settings and and things like that. It's just wonderful. Just, it's beautiful. It's all very beautiful. And Roig knows how to make cities look as pretty as, you know, the natural world, which is really something. And and the deserts too. That little, when Rip Torn goes to visit him out in the shack there, and that scene where he's standing on the porch and there's all the ripped uh, mesh of the uh, screens and stuff like that. That scene is amazing. amazing. It's just gorgeous. It's just yeah. gorgeous. And that's the word for this film. It's gorgeous. Mm. It, it, it's a, it is kind of a perfect midnight movie, I think, in a lot of ways. It's just a movie you allow to wash over you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very... Uh, for anyone out there that uh, like to take a few substances before they go and watch Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, this might be, it might be a good choice uh, to, to, to try out for this one because uh, it would definitely fit. I don't recommend it with Don't Look Now, though. <laughs> You'll have some bad experiences, I think. Some bad experiences. <laughs> uh, well, so, so speaking to Don't Look Now, yes. So speaking of the, the cinematography, yeah. I've never seen Venice look less glamorous than it, than it has in this movie. Yeah. It, it's a city that looks like it's run down, you know, uh, uh, the characters work for the Save Venice Society, I think it's called. <laughs> and like, th- this is obviously a city that in, by the 1970s is kind of becoming waterlogged and painful to be at. Uh, rats everywhere. Uh, you know, it, it's very dreary. I don't think the sun ever shines. Um, I did read, I think in the IMDb trivia section, it said that Rogue typically did not shoot in any of the well-known locations. Now look, he walks through uh, St. Mark's Square at one point. You can see the tower in the background and that original shot with the, I forget which church that is right on the Grand Canal. So you get those two shots, but you don't get the Rialto Bridge. You don't get those other things. You get the back roads, the backwoods of uh, Venice, which is still beautiful and still uh, amazing. Um, Have you ever been to Venice, Jason? I never have. It's a place I've always wanted to go. That that was a that was a instead of buying a house, that's what the foolish Silva newlyweds did. Is uh, oh, we, nice. we went to we went to Venice and 
yeah, it's just seeing it again. It's just, I just, I love it. I would go back there at a drop of a hat. So, um, but yeah, this is not the Venice of the travel brochures for certain, but it's still as enchanting as, as ever. You never think of Castanova when you're watching uh, Don't Look Now. No, I actually felt like parts of it were kind of almost noirish, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Those dark streets, especially at night, going through the oh, yeah. back the back canals, yeah, generally like kind of terrifying. And I, I, I will share a personal, uh, very quick personal story. So when we went to Venice on our honeymoon, um, we came into Venice at night. We took the train from Rome to Venice. And so to get to our hotel, you know, we had to get on the, the Vaporetto on the Grand Canal and we were at Venice at night and to see Venice for the first time at night with the lights of the city reflecting off the water of the Grand Canal as you went through, uh, you know, to, to get to our hotel and then walking to two total uh, noobs, you know, uh, walking through this, this, this city, trying to find a hotel and neither of them speaking English. Uh, just amazing and he captures that he captures that that mood that feeling that atmosphere that we talked about in man who fell to earth um he captures that in in don't look now in a really sinister way but also in a beautiful way yeah yeah and the sinister but beautiful is a great way of putting it that's a great story oh you just make me want to make me want to visit it for absolutely Just go in at night. Go in at night. Trust me. Yeah, to arrive at night. Wow. I'm going to keep that Arrive at night in Venice. Yeah, the, the uh, Venice and Vegas wasn't quite the same. <laughs> oh, the Venetian is, uh, yeah, we get to really be snobs when we went to the Venetian several <laughs> years later. Just, this is not, no, this is dirty American shit. <laughs> Stay away. So uh, just as, as I was saying before, just as The Man Who Fell to Earth is a really uh, unique sort of sci-fi film, the look now is a is a unique sort of horror film. It is not really horror per se. It's more about being haunted by a tragic memory and trying mm-hmm. to get past it, doing anything you can to to cling to the joy of it and being continually kind of haunted by it. Was this your first time seeing Don't Look Now? No, I saw it. It's either my second or my third time watching it now. Okay. I saw it uh, first about a year ago, I think. Okay. I think that this movie, you know, this was definitely one that lived up to the hype. I had heard, I had seen Don't Look Now listed as a, like a top five horror movie on some, I want to say it was like AMC, you know, 30 Days of Horror documentary. It was all, you know, it was all scholars, scholars of children. Um, it was all scholars who were, were talking about these movies and they put Don't Look Now. I was like, I saw the red, uh, the coat, the red coat. You already gave it away. So uh, I saw The Dwarf and I was like, I've got to see that movie. And it, it, that one lived up to the height. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, walk about, like I said, walk about Man Who Fell to Earth. You know, I was I was at odds when they started, but don't look now. I caught you know right off the bat. So um, I I adore this movie. I think it's wonderful. And watching it now, like I said, whatever this was, third, fourth, fifty sixth, who the hell cares? Time, boy, it's a stretch to call this a horror movie because the horror only really happens in the last twenty minutes. I mean, there's tension and there's 
there's definitely a, a horror element. I mean, they're, they're dealing with the death of, this, of the daughter, but as far as, you know, horror, horror, I don't know. Or the, you could say the horror comes in the first 10 minutes when sure. you see the daughter drown, which is just heartbreaking for anyone right. who's had children. Right, right. And you don't actually see the drowning. You know, it's much more uh, dramatic than that. This isn't uh, 90s in your face. You know, No, I mean, we see her movies. playing out there and everything is happy. And then we're forced to see the, the faces of his parents and right, the reaction their reaction which is you know again like so easy for anybody to identify with mm. and um it, it's in a way of a beautiful movie because it seems to not drive Sutherland the Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie characters apart in fact it seems to almost make them closer mm. they've been through this trauma and it's allowed them to appreciate how important it is for them to be together Hmm. And, you know, I've, we've been through uh, trauma in our family life and, mm-hmm. you know, getting through that to the other side has really helped to deepen the bonds. But there's always this kind of haunting feeling in the back of your head, like, what if, or, or like, it never goes know, away. Or like the Christie character wants to do seance just so she can really feel in touch with the girl. Now, I think it's interesting that they seem to be at peace with where they are in terms of their family. And then the older woman, the, with the, the blind woman who has mm, apparent sisters. psychic powers, kind of brings it back up to the surface for them. And then it becomes this almost painful thing they have to attend to. Mm. And because of that, I wonder if there's, you know, a little bit of it lurking under the surface at all times and then keeps coming up. Yeah, I definitely, yeah, yeah. You're hitting on those two big themes. I think that's the whole idea of water in this movie, very symbolic of something just under the surface, just below. I think Venice in general, we should say again, based on a book by Daphne uh, de Maurier or a story by Daphne de de Maurier. There's a lot of stuff that's just under the surface in this movie, emotions, feelings, tension. And this murder spree, that's also going on in the city. Uh, they're pulling bodies out of out of the canals. So, you know, again, under the surface, just below. I mean, I think that's the other thing that is very interesting about this movie as the sense of when you see things, you know, bodies emerging from below the surface. And I think that's that same sense you're getting with those emotions and those feelings. You know, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland um, the Baxters look like they uh, have things, you know, well in hand and they're dealing with it, but it's the death of a, a, a child. They certainly don't. <laughs> no, and, 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 and Rogue knows that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, there's no way they really could. Um, unlike the other movie, this movie really completely centers on the two of them. Yeah. And if their relationship didn't make sense, I'm not sure it would have powered the movie. There is this, this you, we, we can talk about the sex scenes, but even in the smaller scenes, you know, the one of the early scenes is just uh, the two of them meeting up in a cafe. And the Christie character, Laura, is just uh, work, writing in her notebook and the Sullivan character, John, sits down and starts, starts talking. 
And you can see it just from the way she puts away the notebook, then turns to him and looks at him like she's genuinely interested in what he's doing. But you can see this bond between them. It's a really nice, subtle way of showing their relationship. And throughout, you know, there's this, these tiny cues in the way they walk with each other and the way they seem to interact with each other. This is a lived-in relationship that, uh, that has this kind of inner comfort area. I mean, we both married a long time and I could certainly empathize with that, right? Uh, every couple has their kind of equilibrium about where they, the way they relate with each other. I used to sometimes, uh, you would, pe- I, I, I don't know, you're a, a much more above board character than I am, but you sometimes <laughs> sit in restaurants. Sure that means. <laughs> I sometimes sit in restaurants and you look at other couples and, you know, they're not talking with one another and you try to suss out, you know, not that they're in a fight or what their situation is or whatever. But it's that lived-in experience that you're talking about that two people who have spent as much time with one another as, uh, you know, an old married couple has, you know, it's not you finish each other's sentences kind of stuff, though you may. It's also just, you know, you are so familiar with that person. And also, I believe the Baxters are in love. I mean, these are two characters who are, despite the tragedy that has occurred, these are two people that are still in love and credit to... so excuse me, Sutherland and Christie for, for acting that and looking that way. I mean, the way they walk together, um, it looks, you know, they don't look like they're acting. They look like they're living. it. Yeah. And the, the, the few scenes where their uh, son who's at a boarding school in England uh, hurts, falls down and hurts himself. Like when they arrange for her to go spend time with him, like you could just see these subtle movements and the way they act together and the way they make their plans, like everything just like, appropriately follows and in fact you also see that from the innkeeper at the hotel they're staying at because he immediately steps into motion you see him doing right. his job well yeah and it's like this really interesting thing where you just see these relationships play out in subtle ways and this professionalism so it feels very adult yeah and i'm thinking of clue jason one of the movies we talked about a little while ago and donald Sutherland's performance in that movie and that relationship there which was much different than this relationship here where that was much more of, you know, a very cold man and the, you know, trying to sort of establish a relationship and a getting to know you sort of thing. And then you have this one here that is much more married couple partnership, you know, 50, 50 split. Um, that is just, you know, uh, two totally different performances and why Donald Sutherland's, you know, was a great, it is, was a great actor. Yeah. You're underlining why he was a great actor. Just the point. Range. Yeah, the real range. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that at all. Uh, just occur to me, pal. It's sometimes these things just come up out of the, under the surface. <laughs> I know I'm mostly winging this myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've copious notes, copious notes. Do you, did you, do you take copious notes, by the way? I don't. I didn't have to. For, I should have. At, at one point, I just sort of threw up my hands with Man Who Fell to Earth. But uh, don't look now. I have a little bit of a, I've actually been to that. Uh, country a few times okay so. i'm curious because a lot of podcasters will take extensive notes and allow the conversation to follow the notes and that's a pretty powerful experience but <laughs> it's just not my approach yes i know that's i i i like the sax approach i gotta say it definitely helped out here did you feel uh, make make the argument that don't look now is a horror movie and and you can't see this but i'm you know putting my fingers up and down audience Assume that there's the, okay, I'll put it this way. 
there's the ghost of a child that is haunting them. The memory of the child is a ghost that lives in their heads that's manifesting itself, herself, in the memories that the older woman is bringing up, Heather. And because of that, they are, there's a ghost that's literally a specter that's haunting them throughout their life in Venice. Okay. Now, in an ordinary film, you would see the ghost kind of, uh, here's, here's an analogy. I, just then uh, previously, not, not very long ago, I did a series of watches of John Carpenter movies mm. and we recorded a, a pod on, on the Carpenter films, which went up uh, uh, on uh, October 15th. Still available <laughs> through all your local services. Yes, That's a really good listen. <laughs> yes. You've seen Halloween, I'm sure, probably yep. many more than once. And yep. one of the nice things about that, one of the things I love about that film is that Michael Myers goes from a specific physical person to this disembodied creature of vengeance or terror or fear. Mm-hmm. He transcends, right? So that at the end, when he gets shot five times and falls out of the building, you know the evil in Michael Myers will continue to live on. And you could take it as literal, you know, Michael Myers is a spirit, or you can take it as metaphorical. You know, he's the he's the fear that lives in Jamie Lee Harris's or Jamie Lee Curtis's soul for the rest of her life. So, you know, he may be literal at some point, but he passes into something deeper. That's how I see the ghost of the baby, the, the young girl in this film, is like this physical thing that becomes a metaphorical spirit that haunts them. Yeah, I think you're also hitting on one of the most important things about Rogue's movies is they're all metaphors. They're all, all the things that you're seeing on the screen are, I mean, this is the case of movies in general, but Rogue especially is really working with in this metaphorical landscape and this metaphorical world where I, I think that's a great read. And yes, it is, it is a subtle horror movie, is a subtle ghost story, which is really, you know, the, the, the dwarf and the killings really don't have anything to do with because there's no way that, that John Baxter is chasing after the little red coat <laughs> that he sees if, if, if it wasn't tied to his daughter. And, and I think that's a, great, that's a great reading of it, Jason. So do you read the ending as a non sequitur or as a logical conclusion or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, I think you can have it both ways uh, with this one. I also think that, you know, the one thing that I saw this time around um, in it is, and whether I've forgotten about it or just didn't cue into it is, you know, the, the, the blind sister, Heather, I think we said her name was, um, she says that he has second sight too. And I think that's the other thing about the opening of this movie, you know, seeing it for the first time, you would never realize how he's essentially seeing his own death. He's seeing his own demise. And I think that's the thing because that, that was, that, that was about this one that really cued me is when he thinks Julie is in Venice, that she never went to visit his son. That's a, that's a vision. That's a premonition that he's seeing. You want to talk about fractured time he's seen his, his own funeral cortege. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> when he I, sees her. I just picked up on that the most recent time I watched it too. I was like, oh my God, now I get it. Right, 
Right. And yeah, that yeah, whole montage at the very end, before we see the cortege, is really spelling that out for us. Yeah. 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 He's seen literally seeing his own his own death. Uh, and that's that's because again, he is not, you know, I don't know if this is uh, you know, empathetic or or whatever it is, but he is not not buying in. That's not the right word. But he, he is not acknowledging his emotions and his feelings about this ability that he has to sort of see the future. I mean, the sister uh, is is all into that. I don't know what she's seeing in the first seance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, have my, I, have, I have a couple of ideas, but he certainly sees the future and he has premonitions. And that's very clear uh, with this rewatch for me. Do you want to talk about the first seance or do you want to talk about John's visions? Uh, let's go to the first seance because it's going to take us to sex, Jason. At least okay. that's what I think. <laughs> I just think the, the seance is, you know, again, Nicholas Rogue, right? This isn't, you know, a bunch of people sitting on a table, hands on top of each other. This is, you know, a, a one woman who is, has, you know, premonitions, has second sight, who has an orgasmic experience that is, I think, tied to the sex scene that we've already seen at this point in the movie. And, and, and the, the wife, does it, Laura, doesn't seem to mind uh, that she's having this outer body orgasmic, you know, uh, feeling, uh, but she just kind of rolls with it. And I don't know how she thinks her daughter is tied to that, but, uh, you know, tell me what you thought. Yeah. Right. Cause she's, she does the whole accelerated breathing thing. He's just screaming at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that is, it is weird. Uh, (laughs) Do you think she's partially channeling Laura then? Yeah. Oh, or do yeah. you think this could be the connection yeah. to John that you're talking about? I think it's both. I, I think it's both. I think that that whatever John Laura-ness, I think that's the thing that she's channeling at that moment. Because one thing, again, I picked up at this rewatch was that she says to Laura the first time, she says, I saw her laughing. I saw her sitting with you laughing. And that's when she sees them in the in the restaurant, cafe, whatever, before they sort of, she helps her to the bathroom um, in early in the movie. And I, I think that, you know, their lives are so intertwined with this, you know, with their, their daughter who is, who's dead, that that's sort of their energy is what she's reading in that seance. And, you know, this is fresh off of the, fresh off of the sex scene. So, um, that's how I saw it. Hmm. I think that's a really interesting read. It hadn't occurred to me at all. So you thought her 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 reaction wasn't. What did you think of of the sister's reaction? You didn't get orgasm out of it. I guess I was more kind of confused by it than anything because I was <laughs> puzzled why she would have this kind of yeah. I, I thought maybe it's an ecstatic reaction to actually yeah. being able to display her psychic abilities in some way. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, she's just the only other way to read. So that just seems such a innocent way of looking at it right oh <laughs> yeah I, I i have always read that as just you know 
I, I thought she was making fun of them at first. I thought she was, you know, uh, fake, not faking it, but I thought she was trying to give uh, Laura a sense that she knows, you know, what she's been up to, that there's some sort of shame uh, to come out of her, you know, lovemaking with her husband. Um, but yeah, yeah, but that's it, illogical, it, right? Yeah. It, it, Why would there be any shame tied to right. a married couple? Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm just like, she's out. Like she knows something about her. She knows. I, what no, she's I, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I think I'm no, 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 no. By saying that. Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, I like that. I like that a lot. Did you know when you first saw this movie, did you know about the sex scene? I deliberately went in not knowing anything about the film. Okay. And yeah, it took me by surprise. <laughs> because it, it just happened so kind of casually. Yeah. You know, you see Christy in the bath. Okay, there's her boobs. That's nice. <laughs> you saw the in the shower. I'm like, oh, wait, what's that I see? Oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and they're on the bed together and he's naked. And you see her just like touching him. And I'm like, oh, wow, what it like, and it just felt so naturalistic as a way of leading into it. And I think that's the comment that everyone makes. It really feels like this couple has this intimacy with each other. And you see it even with the fact he's brushing his teeth and they're chatting while he's brushing his teeth and he's teasing her about not being able to hear her. And then she teases him back about, uh, no, you did hear me this time, right? Which is a conversation I've had with Lisa a thousand times. I, I think the uh, so other... it just all kind of flows so naturally into the their married couples. Uh, you know, their the belief in them as being a true married couple, hmm. um, and it felt very, in a weird way, comforting. Hmm. Interesting. Like here's a couple who kind of you can see, you could see they have a trusting foundation for each other. Mm-hmm. So like the real intimacy. Like the, the, one of the moments you can really see the intimacy is it's it's weird how it's intercut with them getting dressed for later on. There's a couple theories around that, one of which is just that simply they wanted to avoid the movie getting an X rating. So by chopping it up, okay. uh, they were able to kind of camouflage it. But the true intimate moment is when they're walking down the, out the hallway and she's just standing so close to him in this, in this very kind of trusting couple sort of way. There's another moment, I can't remember when, a little later on, maybe he's like 6'2", and she's like 5'4", or something. Yeah, yeah, But they're yeah. chatting, they're talking, they're walking next to each other, and she's just talking to him like it's the most normal thing for her to be glancing up at her, at him. Yeah. And yeah. it's just this very kind of emotionally intimate communication between them. So, yeah, I mean, the sex scene is is interesting, right? Like, like all, as I mentioned earlier, like in all rogue movies, you get the full... The full Monty, so to speak. Oh yeah, frontal, uh, backtal, sidal, <laughs> topple. But it it kind of really works nicely in this film. It, it's the piece of the film, though. I gotta say, and then I'll let you talk because I've been talking for five. Oh, no, go right ahead. That uh, uh, really for all his films, up into bad timing, and then they kind of go in a different direction. That feels the most dated, honestly. Hmm because nudity in film just isn't a thing in the, as much anymore. At that time, it was like pretty common. You watch a lot of early 70s films. It's just a thing that you would often see. You know, we, we saw it in Clute, for example, you know? Mm. Uh, maybe a little less in Parallax, but you know, in a lot of movies there, 
Uh, so that actually felt oddly dated. Okay, I I will follow. Uh, I see you're dated, and I think the thing that's dated about it, if anything, is, and I think this is the case with all Rogues movies, and certainly in these two films, it is very um, naturalistic sex that there is a very sense of i think that's why it has the reputation that it has is that you know the the rumor for a long time was that they really had you know intercourse they really had sex and rogue filmed it and put it on the screen and and i think this is that you know sense of um you know alfred hitchcock and psycho and the editing is you know that knife never touches her but in your head she gets stabbed all those you know 56 thousand times whatever you know whatever your imagination says and i think rogue through his editing and it, that that the love scene in this the sex scene in this is masterful editing uh to, to begin with just the way everything just flows from one thing to the next to the next it looks unbroken and i think that's why we think we see more than we do mm -hmm. and i think 70 sex scenes definitely have a much more naturalistic feel where nowadays things are so much more rushed and so much so tighter and choppier and, and you know um edited to the to to the ends and this is you know, bodies move in this and they move in wide shots which is interesting there's points where donald sutherland is on the bottom and then he turns his body and he gets on top and it's not just like a gentle sexy porny kind of flip it's like you know he turns his whole body you see all you see all the Sutherland you need to see, you know, and <laughs> same goes for Julie Christie. And, and, you know, we talked about agency before she starts it. I mean, I think, you know, and, and not in a turn on kind of way and just a very, as you say, naturalistic sort of way by just rubbing his back and, and he's naked, but, you know, she's rubbing his back and, you know, it, it happens naturally. And I think that's the thing here with 70 sex in seventies movie sex is it's very naturalistic. There doesn't seem to be, a performative uh part of it certainly not in this film hmm. no no and it just occurred to me there's a theme actually across all his early movies where uh a lot of the casual nudity comes from people taking baths or shower <laughs> uh, performance there's a, a bath scene walk about there's the scene of jenny agater swimming in the pool naked uh -huh. Uh -huh. um he did a documentary on the, on the second Glastonbury festival called, called Glastonbury Fair, and people swim naked in that. Oh, okay. Uh, don't look now. There's the shower and bath scene. Yep. Man Who Fell to Earth has it. Yep. It's this odd little kind of recurring motif in his films, <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just think that that's the thing about 70s, you know, sex in 70s movies, where it's just so just happening. Um, I know... We saw this. Uh, we didn't watch this, but I think it's 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 also the case with um, William Friedkin. Friedkin, the way he films sex, or even you know encounters and things like that. It's the same thing. Just somebody naturally, you know, they're getting ready for bed or whatever. They they take off their shirt, not to be you know dramatic about it, but just to be. Hey, I'm I'm in my own house. I'm you know comfortable. It's you know time for bed. Whatever. I, Going to change my clothes so yeah it's just uh, a different era yeah just a totally different look and and I, I i do think that the editing is what makes this movie 
makes you think you see more than you see yeah. uh, in this movie. And then I think this the 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 gun sex scene in Men Who Fell to Earth is way more provocative than this is. The gun helps, but uh, you know, way more titillating than this is. Yeah, and it's so uncomfortably titillating. <laughs> Oh my God, the whole time I'm thinking, do I want this to end? This is really painful. I'm not sure if I keep watching this. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't get that. Don't get that feeling from this one. Do you think the dwarf is scary? No. <laughs> that was a long, that's a long pause. I was gonna I was gonna ask you what you think of the ending. So let's play it back. Okay. So Sutherland, uh, Sutherland is trying to find the psychic girl, psychic women, mm-hmm. uh, attempts to find their hotel, which he can't find. Yep. Then retraces a step and finds it and then kind of runs off because he thinks he can find the person who he feels like is the ghost of his child. Well, Meanwhile, his wife is away and has just come back and is coming to look for him. You were going to mm-hmm. say something. All I was going to say is he, uh, I, you were getting there. He gets them arrested. <laughs> he goes yeah. to the police <laughs> and has the sisters arrested because he thinks that they have his, his wife. So I'm sorry, go ahead. No. And that, that's also a really kind of creepy, bizarre, strange right. choice to make. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. So he goes basically to try to apologize to them. Yep. So the Christie character uh, comes to the Laura, tries to come basically figures out that they're at the he's at the hotel they're at and she mm-hmm. comes to look for them look for him yep. runs into heather the, the blind woman and heather basically says he ran over that way yep. i think it was wendy actually the one who yeah. could see anyway doesn't matter he thinks he's found the daughter who turns out to be the dwarf the murderer and he runs and locks a gate chains the gate closed the christie character laura comes looking for him but is stuck away from, from actually entering because he had closed the gate. He then, <coughs> excuse me, he then forces the revelation by saying, by kind of grabbing the, what turns out to be the dwarf by the shoulder. She turns around, reveals herself for who she really is and cuts him in the jugular vein. Meanwhile, Christy is cut out from coming into this courtyard, this, yep. this plate, this, I didn't mention also that as he goes through that courtyard, there's this kind of smoke and fog rolling around the right. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, and it feels like an old fashioned movie flashback yep. in a way, yep. right? Yep. It's oh, the, yeah. the classic, you know, Wayne's World kind of smoke. Uh, oh, universal horror. It's a, you right? know, it could be Frankenstein or Dracula that's in that, that you know, Venice pile of bricks and, and, and marble. Yeah. So this is a long way of coming around to the question of what I said earlier. I feel like the ending's kind of metaphorical and not physical. Oh, I think John Sutherland dies. I think John Baxter dies because he sees his death in the premonition. And I think that's the other thing is that the metaphor there is his own psychosis, his own uh, despair or whatever. I mean, he goes after that figure because he thinks it's his dead daughter. I think that's what we're supposed to think. 
right. um, or, or he's just inquisitive enough to sort of, you know, follow this through, whatever the case may be. No, I think he, I think clearly we're meant to think he thinks it's his daughter, right. which doesn't make any sense. Absolutely not. Because he says he's the one that makes the big, you know, uh, show to say, you know, she's dead. He says it about four or five times to her. And that's so what sort make, of kicks Cruz Christie. Ahead. So I would make the case it's not a horror movie because some strange slasher attacks mm-hmm. him. I'd make the case it's a horror movie because he's haunted by this vision. He goes through the fog of his own memory mm-hmm. and exposes himself to danger that then kills him. But it's his own kind of the fact that he's haunted. They shut out the rest of his family that allows this to happen. So, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that's difficult about the ending is that if you read it on the surface, he has no agency. He just does this thing that he thinks is the right thing. And this random person comes and kills him. Now there's right. terror in that, right? Random death hitting you yeah. uh, it is terrifying, but it's just as terrifying to say, I can't get over my own pain. So therefore I'm gonna commit acts that are foolish, that are gonna put myself in danger. And therefore, I'm going to bring on this fate for myself. I like that. I like that a lot. I, I think that's a really smart way to sort of see the dwarf and all this. I think one of the things that's interesting and always, always just not enough filmmakers do it is Roig really lives in the wide shot. I mean, I love the fact that you never really see who the killer is until the very end and even when you do it's it's kind of a letdown because seeing it at a distance seeing that little red hood run through a scene on a wide shot where your eye just sort of catches it for a second just like the the character is doing is so effective it's just such an effective way to create this tension and create this terror and to realize that the thing is real and he keeps saying, John keeps saying throughout the whole thing, you know, I'm worried about my wife. The reason he goes to the police, in a sense, is he's trying to track down these two women. He says, she's not well, and there's a killer on the loose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he, so to, to take your uh, reading of it, you know, he doesn't take his own advice. I mean, he's not well either. <laughs> and no, he's, he's not. Running through, he's running through the dark, you know, fog street streets of, uh, of Venice you know, making foolish choices, making, you know, uh, choices that will end his life, that will, you know, he'll, he'll, he dies. So he's never gonna, he's never gonna reconstruct that church. It's just gonna go, it's just gonna go by the wayside. <laughs> you just brought in the, the kind of last topic I was kind of gonna come to, which is Sutherland, Sutherland John is a man who restores churches for a living. Sure. He wants to get him perfect, right? There's a scene of him trying to get the tile exactly right. The scene oh, yeah, yeah. almost falls off the scaffolding. He doesn't seem to have any inner spiritual life. Or yeah. at least there's no mention of God. The only treatment of churches is around restoring them. The His wife goes in and lights a candle for their daughter. Mm-hmm. But he's even reluctant to give her the 50 lira to, to buy the candle. And so she finds some sense of closure in the lighting the candle and talking to the women, the woman who has the prophetic vision. He never gets that closure because he's a skeptic and because uh, 
because he he just doesn't believe he believes he can move on from the pain right so it's also his hubris that gets him in the end mm-hmm. and his yeah. lack of spirituality that gets him at the end his lack of belief of, of, of belief in himself and his own abilities and his his lack of belief in a higher power at one point you know, they're going along the canal and she says, I want to stop at that church. He's like, oh, Laura, you know, uh-huh. oh, oh, you, you know, okay, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll let you do this, you know, little woman. Kind and of again, thing. who among us hasn't done this with our spouse or been on the <laughs> other side, right? Hey, uh, Lisa, you see that comic store there while we're on vacation <laughs> or wherever it might be. Uh, I thought you were going to say, you know, when uh, my wife says, oh, I'm just going to go into this know shoe store for a minute or this clothing store or whatever i I see they have brooks can i buy some brooks yeah 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 oh let's go into this dollar store let's not move on yeah anyway anyway so so yeah 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 no 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 that's another (laughs) that's another you know lived in aspect of the of the relationship but i think that's a great reading on john as well just to sort of sense that you know there has to be something more and in most in both these movies there is that sense of you know, is David Bowie a male character? Let's just say Newton is male for, for want of better phrases. Roig is always searching for that, that some sort of inner bigger picture. There's more to this than just, you know, dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. There's something more. And that's the thing that John Baxter is turned off to. He has shut that part out of his life, whether that's you know, because of the death of his daughter, or because that's the kind of man he is, not a big emotional intelligence. And I think that's the yeah. same thing with the Bowie character is he's alien, you know, he's trying to understand humans. It's a great line where she's like, Oh, you're such a great man. He's like, No, I'm not. <laughs> wow, know, that's a that really interesting insight, Keith. Trying to sort of find that emotional intelligence. Emotional and I think, intelligence, yeah. I, I think I think rogue movies are all about emotional intelligence. Yeah, or lack thereof. Or lack thereof, yeah. I'm looking through his filmography. Uh, every one of the movies I, I'm looking at, either the characters are innocent or they just don't really have a perception of how they interact with the world. They all lack emotional intelligence. Yeah. God knows the Garfunkel character in Bad Timing has no emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. The gangster in performance doesn't. Wow, that's a great insight. Keith? Oh, well, <laughs> sometimes you have to take notes and sometimes it just comes <laughs> out. Like that. But no, I, I think that's the other thing about Rogue is, you know, it's wonderful to uh, be able to discuss. This is one of those, he's one of these filmmakers, and I think that's why his influence has lasted, is you need to talk about these movies. These aren't things that you sort of just watch and everyone sort of has an agreed upon understanding of it. They're movies you need to sort of noodle through and talk about. And, you know, for the most part, some of it is worth, you know, just pushing off to the side. And then other things, you know, there's some real things to really turn over here. And these are two great examples of that. He has four movies in the top 1,000, which is a site, which is a list I like to look at because it's amalgamated from all the different other top 100 and top 1,000 lists. So there's math attached to it, which I like. (laughs) Uh, Don't Look Now is number 128, okay. a list of top thousand movies yeah. of all time. Performance is number 219, which is a little higher than I expected. Mm. 
Number three from him is Walkabout, number 712. Okay. And number four is Bad Timing, which is number 987. Wow. So No Man Who Fell to Earth, huh? No Man Who Fell to Earth, which I'm surprised That's by. weird. Yeah. It's really weird. Huh. Uh, I am so glad we got to talk about these because, like you said, like I watched all, all those movies by him. And each time I'm like, I got to find someone else who's seen these. <laughs> there's so much going on here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or, or at least it's just one of those movies where, like, you have to talk about it to be like, did you? Did I see what I thought I saw? Uh, over and over again, I had that. Yeah. Over and over again, I had that. I want to talk about walkabout because, like, there's those non sequitur scenes in the middle of the movie. They're like, what's going on here? I don't get why we're getting people setting off you know uh weather balloons all of a sudden uh and there's always something like that in all his movies i have a i have a friend who says you know you have to remember that movies are movies and you know certain shit just looks cool he's like there's no reason (laughs) there's no reason so why does kurosawa have rain in all his movies because rain looks cool on film yeah i think that's the other thing with uh with 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 uh, Roeg is you know all those nature scenes all those th- that cinematography those images that we're talking about they just look cool it looks cool when a scaffolding you know falls and almost kills Donald Sutherland that's cool stuff you want to watch that's that's what movies are about thanks for doing this Keith thank you Jason always a pleasure. <laughs>